those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Vegan Vanguard, a show where we tackle a variety of issues from a leftist, anti-capitalist, and vegan perspective. I'm Maureen, and if this is your first time here, today's episode is going to be a little bit different because I will be interviewing Yazan Al-Saadi about the Syrian war. This is a show that I usually co-host with Mexi, aka my virtual bestie who lives about a million miles away from me, uh, but fear not, she'll be back next episode, and in the meantime, I have a really special interview for you that I think you'll really enjoy. So just to give you a little update, in the future we do want to alternate between episodes where we discuss topics, the two of us, the two of us meaning Maxi and I, and episodes where we individually interview people. Um, because though three-way interviews would be really dope, it would <laughs> sort of unfortunately be an editing nightmare. So we're going to stick to this format for now. All right, so I was super fortunate to interview Yazan Al-Saadi, who is a Syrian-Canadian writer, researcher, and activist currently based in Beirut. If you are a devoted follower of my YouTube channel, A Privileged Vegan, you might remember that I interviewed Yazan pretty much exactly a year ago. And you guys on the whole really loved that video. And yes, I'm aware that I'm just assuming that all the listeners are devoted followers of my YouTube channel. Um, and you had so many other questions for Yazan in the comment section of that video. Well, people did, my viewers. So I've been meaning to interview him again in order to ask all of those questions. And I also reached out to people on Facebook just like a week ago to ask for additional questions. And you guys really came through. So I'll be asking Yazan all of your burning questions around Rojava, Iran, Israel, the US. <laughs> I'm just listing places at this point. Um, but also chemical weapons, Syrian solidarity, the potential of toppling the Assad regime, etc., etc. So uh, hopefully that just got you super pumped for the episode. And you can find more of Yazan Al Saadi's work on the Nib Al Akbar English, Mufta, Rasif 22, Democracy Now!, Russia Today. Lebanon support, and more. So I'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes for today's episode. One last thing before we get into the episode, I just wanted to thank our Patreon donations this week. So a huge thank you to Lapau, Larry Dykus, Brandon Wright, and Bridget McErlean. So I, I apologize uh, if I mispronounced any of those names. Wow, I like got a bit of a power high there because Mexi usually usually thinks our patrons. Um, it's quite a role reversal. I feel like I should use this power to say something, do something. I don't know. So if you'd like to support the show, you can make a monthly donation to us through Patreon. We also have a PayPal account via our website, theveganvanguardpodcast.com. And you can share our episodes with your friends, your family, your Facebook friends. Uh, all of that goes a very long way as well. It's been really great and heartwarming to see people sharing the show and leaving comments on iTunes, leaving comments on our website, like that kind of thing really keeps us going. So thank you so much to everyone who's done that. And thanks in advance to all the people who will continue to do that in 
the future. All right, cool, let's go. Hello, Yazan. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today to speak with us about this really important topic. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, uh, I had such a fun time, fun uh, time talking and, and discussing last time. It was a year ago. It was almost exactly a year ago. And actually preparing for this interview, I rewatched it and I was sad <laughs> to, to see how much the situation has like, how relevant the interview still is to what's going on today and how much the situation hasn't really evolved in the positive directions that you had spoken about during our interview last time. So I'm really stoked to get you back on the show today and speak with you. I had such a great response from your interview last time. And I know that a lot of the viewers of my YouTube channel are excited to hear your new information today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I am glad that what I said last time resonated. Uh, I just want to point out that I, I, I tend to speak for myself, you know, and I'm always weary about doing any type of interview because of this perspective of the expert, you know, and I, I, I don't want to be perceived as the gatekeeper of voices on the ground. I, I'm mainly speaking for myself, and I'm, I'm glad that what I say is constructive. And that's something that you made very clear last time in your interview. I sort of introduced you by saying, oh, Yazan is a Syrian uh, Canadian writer. And can you give us a Syrian take on what's going on? And you were like, hold up, you know, that I'm just one voice. And there are so many voices. And I think that we tend to tokenize sort of the one Syrian voice that we had to hear as like the dominant viewpoint for what needs to be done. And you were very clear about sort of dispelling that at the beginning last time, which I appreciated. Thank you. I, I, I hope I can be as as useful and as informative this time. Yeah, and I'm excited to have this new format, this new platform of a podcast, because last time we had to restrict our conversation to about 30 minutes just because it's hard to keep people on YouTube for longer than that but we don't really have that same time constraint with podcasts yeah. which which is great for sure and and I wonder are you going to play like music in the background while we're talking because I think some <laughs> some podcasts do that yeah I we're not quite high tech enough we play like an <laughs> intro and outro music we're actually struggling with like coming up with a new intro for our show just because just because we didn't like our last intro. So now we don't really have like cool NPR style transitions <laughs> yet and things like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So to kind of get us started in this conversation. So I imagine our listeners have a basic understanding about the armed conflict in Syria. But I think it would be helpful to start with an overview of the situation, you know, to, to the extent that is possible, so that we're starting today's discussion on shared ground. So could you please give us um, a, yeah, a brief overview of the Syrian conflict, telling us when it started following the Arab Spring in 2011, and who the main actors are on both the, you know, inside and outside of Syria today? Okay, I'm, I'm going to try and do this as quickly and as simply as possible. Uh, the latest uprising, as I like to call it, began uh, in 2011, and it was influenced by what was happening in the entire region, where there were different uprisings that were emerging in different countries, from Tunisia to Egypt to Yemen to Bahrain. 
and Syria was part of that. Now, is this the beginning of what was happening in Syria? No, because we can go back, and I like to point this out, the initial issues of what drives the current problems today in Syria. You could say that starting point was in 1970, when Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current uh, uh, president uh, Bashar al-Assad, took power. And he took power through an internal coup. It was called the Corrective Movement, where he eliminated any contenders in the Ba'athist movement to gain you know, complete control. And that continued until he uh, died in 2000. And that's when they brought Bashar al-Assad, his son, to take power. And the, and the constitution was actually changed. He was around 34 years old. And they immediately changed the constitution to allow him to, to become president. Mm. Which is an irony of many ironies in this story. But you can even make a point, and I, I feel like I'm going to complicate this, but I'm just going to say it anyways. You can even make the point that the problems in Syria even began further in time mm -hmm. to the initial creation of this country, this nation state during the mandate system after uh, World War One. So there are links to there because it's a, uh, let's not forget that a lot of the states in, in the region are artificial states imposed by Sykes-Pico. So a lot of the issues about representation and identity and, and, and what society and what type of government we want uh, are stem from that time, so it goes all the way there. But anyways, let's let's try to make it easier. Mm -hmm. uh, Bashar Assad took power in two thousand. He promised that as a new face, a Western educated man, he's going to do a lot of reforms politically, socially, and economically. But that obviously didn't happen. And over time, like elsewhere in the region, Syrians of different identities and communities were unable to express themselves politically, safely, and freely. They were also facing a, a neoliberal sort of economic situation that was being imposed by, by the government that took away a lot of, you know, their subsidies, their livelihoods, because Syria is quite a poor country. I mean, it's middle income, and there's a lot of interesting infrastructure and social services. But that stems from a, a history of, you know, leftism in Syrian politics and Syrian society that created a free healthcare system, a free public schooling system. It's less to do with Assad, and people forget this. Anyways, those were slowly being eroded because neoliberalism was happening, right? And you have other factors like the environment, uh, droughts that pushed a lot of the rural population into the urban environment. And you have the politics of what was happening in the region, you know, the war on terror, attacks on Palestine, the war on Iraq. So you have all these dynamics all coming together. And you also had an internal movement in Syria, whether from Kurdish parties or other Syrian opposition members and institutions and human rights activists. They were trying to build a movement uh, to, to fight and struggle for their rights across the board, whether it's political or social rights. Uh, and that all culminated to what we saw in 2011, like elsewhere. Now, what happened since 2011 was incredible. What we saw was an immense counter-revolution in many ways. Counter-revolution within, when I'm talking about the repression of the Assad regime, 
and its allies, you know, uh, Iran played a role, as well as counter-revolution by neighboring countries like Turkey, the Gulf countries, Jordan, the Americans, that were uh, co-opting and appropriating political opposition groups or militarizing certain groups on the ground that just defeated a lot of what Syrians were trying to do during the struggle. So all this came together, and what we see today is a country that is completely devastated. Half the population are either refugees or amputees, uh, and they have no uh, self-determination. And I, I like to use this term because it's true. The Syrian regime does not give the Syrian populace self-determination. Neither do the Syrian opposition groups. And they all have their backers. There's Turkey involved. There's the Iraqi army now and other militias. There's Hezbollah, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the US, France, the UK. The list goes on and on. And obviously Israel as well playing a very negative role, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. So we have a devastated country. Now, what we saw the last year is major changes on the front lines. For example, the, the, the Kurdish parties have dominated and been able to take uh, a lot of the north, mm -hmm. known as Rojova, all the way down, uh, as they were fighting against ISIS, all the way down on the eastern side of the river, uh, Deir Ezzor and so forth to the border. The Syrian regime forces have expanded their control within central Syria and onwards to the limits of Idlib and to the bottom to Daraya. For example, this week, the Syrian uh, government's forces have taken over Yarmouk successfully and the pockets of northern Homs. So now they dominate the entirety. Uh, the so-called Syrian armed opposition groups are scattered, weakened. A lot of them with other civilians are being hurdled into Idlib, which is a northern province, a northern western province. It's sort of like an encaged zone where I think it's going to be disastrous and bloody. You have the involvement of the Turks in the north, who have taken over Afrin and, and dominated north of Aleppo as well. Uh, and you have the Israelis being more and more aggressively involved. And obviously the Russians are there and the Americans. So it's quite a mess. Mm -hmm. I know this is not uh, uh, this you know isn't comprehensive, but I tried to just summarize it as much as I can. But we can go on and on and describe how did this happen and where and how did we reach to this point? And it it would be quite an interesting conversation. I assure mm -hmm. you. Wow! Thank you so much for going as far back as kind of how Assad rose to power because I really did not know any of that history and yeah that was really useful to hear I mean it's it's quite important whatever our topic uh, it is that we go to the roots I mean when you talk about for example Palestine you can't talk about Palestine without talking about the ethnic cleansing in 1947-1948 mm -hmm. if you talk about black lives matter in the US you cannot have that conversation without going back to the history of slavery. Absolutely. You have to look at the roots, history, time. Absolutely. And I think that that history is lost in a lot of the mainstream discussion about Syria, especially in this current climate where every few months there's just one big 
event that's heavily mediatized and everyone kind of jumps on the issue all over again. Yeah, I think uh, that is that is an interesting trend. And I think that is one of the major problems when we when we have discussions about Syria, because the media does look at incidents without looking at context and trends. You know, there's like a, either a special type of attack or a bombing or an involvement or someone. So the story is lost. And, and that says more about the nature of the media cycle, the nature of narratives or commercialized narratives, let's say, mm-hmm. than anything else and how it creates misinformation, confusion mm-hmm. and, 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 and other problems when you discuss something that is quite important to discuss. Mm-hmm. During my last interview with you, you were quite critical about the leftist anti-imperialist discourse about Syria. And you said that many leftists in the West spoke as if they owned Syria and that ideological lines were often dictated above and beyond the interest of the people. So I was wondering, has this evolved over the last year? And if so, in what way? I think it's 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 still the same, but if we're going to talk about a certain type of evolution, then I think the evolution would be the co-convergence or the blatant convergence with a lot of the so-called you know anti-imperialist leftist or 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 whatever kind of leftist you want to call that mm-hmm. uh, with far right discourse. I mean, this is something that is very blatant these days. You cannot. Uh, you could put a quote from someone like David Duke side by side by an activist on the so-called anti-imperialist leftist scene. And and it's quite similar. I mean, there are issues of Islamophobia. There are issues of uh, uh, a sort of civilizing, uh, civilizing discourse, a sort of entitlement discourse. A sort of uh, uh, downplaying or or diminishing the crimes of the side that they support, things like collateral damage, which is presented in their own way, the justifications, the it's incredible, it's incredible, and and what's fascinating is that the 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 Assad regime plays into that very nicely. I mean, they welcome constantly far right. Uh, politicians from Europe to visit Damascus, you know, a lot of that does happen and it's very public. Uh, while, you know, anti-leftist imperialists are like, you know, uh, rushing to do a, a protest because a Syrian, uh, an Assad base was hit mm-hmm. by U.S. planes while they don't do anything about, you know, the refugees or the people dying. So I think there's that is a sort of evolution that's happening and it's becoming so blatant. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump agrees with you guys. And if Trump sounds like you, then we've got a problem. And if we're going to talk about this, I think what this means, my own opinion, is that we need new labels or better terms for what it means to be a leftist and what it means to be a rightist. Mm-hmm. Because these days I can't tell the difference. And that's that maybe that I think is a good thing, because maybe in the 21st century, we should try to think of different types of labels. I mean, in in theory, and I I, not in theory, in practice, I mean, I 
do agree that Western imperialism is horrendous and one of the major problems in this world. But I cannot, in all consciousness, ignore the crimes or the Russian flavor, for example. Because to me, what the Russians are doing in Syria is like, you know, the American occupation of Iraq. Right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's the same issues. They're, they're testing their weapons on Syrian bodies. They are civilizing Syrians with their, you know, Russian police. And they dominate. I mean, there's no difference here. So... Those on the ground, activists, protesters, intellectuals, commentators who are progressives, we need to have a better discourse uh, and we need to acknowledge the complexities of this world. Mm -hmm. Cold War ideology isn't working. There is no such thing as the Soviet Union versus the U.S. What it seems to me is that we have an international cross-border elite versus us, <laughs> you know, people. I think that is what it is, you know, power. That's what we're talking about. And power comes in different ethnicities and, and races and different nationalities. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's not concentrate on identity to be outraged. Let's concentrate on the act. That's really my opinion here. I mean, I can give you an example. Uh, recently, this last week, right, what the Israelis did to the Palestinians in Gaza is outrageous and it's a war crime and it's barbaric. This is no different from what the Syrian government does in Yarmouk, even though it's fighting ISIS. Civilians are being killed and they are being killed through the justification of fighting terrorism. And that cannot be acceptable. It cannot. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think, really. And I know there are complexities and there are differences between what the Assad government is and what Israel is. I know this. One is a colonial settler state and the other one is a post-colonial uh, dictatorship. <laughs> but the act of shooting civilians, killing civilians, and, and all that, and saying that we're fighting terrorists, therefore we can flatten a neighborhood, how is this acceptable? How is this more humane? It's, it's not. A bomb, when it explodes on a body, isn't more humane to the body, right? <laughs> it's not. A bomb is exploding on a body. What are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. When you were speaking about um, like prototypical leftist discourse that resemble right-wing discourse uh, at times and justifying violence because they are trying to protect an ideological train of thought, I'm assuming you're speaking about leftists who are like pro Assad or or who are protecting Assad, right? Yeah, yeah. Who are either pro or enable and support or or like, and we've seen this constantly in history, right? Like people that rally up uh, against you know what the Americans are doing in in different places around the world, and I think. Of course, you're going to have to struggle and confront the American foreign policy. This is a given. At the same time, that doesn't automatically mean that where the American foreign policy is being directed towards, you know, this, this, you know, uh, it doesn't mean that on that side, uh, Assad is a great man and a saint and an anti-imperialist and all that. 
no, he's shit, and so is the so are so is the U.S. military, political, industrial complex. They're both shit. Mm-hmm. We need an alternative against both these shitty, shitty things. So I wanted to ask you if um, the Syrians successfully oust the Assad regime, what you think would come in its place, or if you know the U.S. and the West were to intervene and successfully overthrow the government, what would the implications for the Syrian people be? And what kind of regime do you think yeah. would follow? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a very difficult question to answer. I'm not a I'm I, I'm not a soothsayer, and I don't know what kind of regime would come up if if they had successfully overthrown the Assad regime. Mm-hmm. It could be an Islamic fundamentalist regime. It could be basically the Assad regime, but without Assad. You know, the same type, just like what happened in Egypt. But even like in Egypt, it's even worse than Mubarak. Uh, or it could be a democratic uh, utopia. The whole point is that Syrians deserve to struggle against a dictatorship. I mean, what comes later is what comes later. Let's just eliminate what is today. I mean, it's it's to use a, maybe this is not a great analogy, but I'm just going to use it. It's like someone, you know, a man telling a feminist that, oh, if you overthrow patriarchy, what's going to come next? Mm-hmm. And can you, so it's basically, can you guarantee what is coming next, you know? And and the implication in that question is, oh, you can't guarantee, so stick to what you know. And that's bullshit. That's basically what I'm hearing with that type of question. I get it. I get you're, you're concerned for me. Great. I mean, great. But Assad is monstrous. I mean, there is a sort of industrial type of torture system there is there were sieges there were uses of you know horrendous types of weapons and we're talking about decades decades of a dictatorship so it's not really something that oh let's give them a chance again talking about 40 years you know it's like (laughs) it's like yeah what are you what are you saying guys and secondly if you know the west had overthrown Assad, i mean obviously i'm against western intervention because i cannot think of one case in which Western intervention has led to uh, a complete self-determination to the people on the ground. So I'm against Western intervention. I am for the toppling of Assad, but I'm not with Western intervention. Because it's clear it's, 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 they're not doing it for my self-determination. They're doing it for their own interests. And we've seen it in examples like Iraq or Libya or, you know, anywhere else in this world, and there are many, many examples. So just like what I say in terms of people that tell me that, oh, give Assad a chance. No, it's very clear that he's been given a chance over decades, and no, I don't want this regime. And Western intervention, I don't want. So what does this mean? We need to start thinking of other forms of solidarity, networking, and action to support the Syrians within and without, and to work together to not accept either or options. Both suck. I want a third option. And we can, I believe we can develop something together. And when I say we, I mean uh, globally. Mm-hmm. People that are listening to your program, someone in China, someone in Ethiopia. I mean, because I see this as part of a larger fight. You know, I don't see what's happening in Syria as sort of in a vacuum. It's part of a larger struggle. And that's what my perspective is. Mm-hmm. What you were saying about, 
you know, feminists being hard pressed to come up with an alternative to patriarchy whenever we, you know, whenever feminists talk about sexism, it also reminds me so much about like the anti-capitalist fight. People are always making it sound like you're some, you know, ideologically naive person who just likes to criticize capitalism, but has no idea what would, you know, no plan for what would come in its place. And it's like, well, the struggle to overthrow capitalism is already so huge that like, I shouldn't have to give an answer. Like I'm not a messiah for what's going to come after capitalism and we can all work on that solution together. Right. I mean, yeah, we don't need to have the answers now. I I don't have answers. I'd prefer to come up with answers in a collective, you know, with many people, Mm -hmm. especially many Syrians. I think that's the only way you can't deny that. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast recently with a Syrian activist. One of her main points was that Western intervention and regime change would be worse than leaving the Assad regime as it is currently. I don't think that is a correct statement. You cannot do that type of comparison. I mean, it's shit, (laughs) you know? I'm sorry for being so vulgar, but it is. I mean, again... You have a destroyed country under Assad. Even if you believe his propaganda, I mean, even if you believe that he's fighting terrorists, he did such a hor- horrible job, right? I mean, and any any sort of, let's say, uh, arguably a democratic institution, right? He did a horrible job fighting this war. If you want to believe his line that he's fighting against terrorism and a large grand conspiracy, he did a horrible job because, again... How many refugees are there? How many injuries are there? What happened to the economy? What happened to the army? What happened to the country's sovereignty? What happened? And the fact that people are like, oh, you know, let's keep him. Why? Why would you keep someone like that? I mean, seriously, how many, like in the US, they're talking about impeaching Trump, right? For the slightest thing. And people think he should be impeached. And I I agree, he should be. But Assad has done more, right? So what are you telling me? <laughs> you know, it's like if I argue, don't impeach Trump. Yeah, it's like Syrians should settle for that, but yeah. we have the right to complain about. Oh, it's it's it's, and I I you know what I I'll make another analogy. It's like telling a person that went through domestic abuse to stay with your partner for the sake of the household. I don't know if this is a fair analogy, but I feel like it's very similar where we want to maintain the status quo. We want to, you know, not rile things up. I mean, no, there is a crime here and I'm for accountability. I believe that any party that committed crimes in Syria should be held accountable, whether it's the Syrian regime, you know, the Assad regime or the ardent opposition or the Russians, the Iranians, the Americans. Everyone, and I guarantee you, if we actually had a fair, just investigation and an accountability system, it's very clear that the Assad government has committed many, many crimes from uh, rape to murder. So you're asking me to accept that? I don't think people would want to accept that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to hear you speak about the fact that a lot of social infrastructure had been in place before the Assad regime, because that's a point that I've heard, is that Assad, 
he brought a socialized universal system of like healthcare and of education and a better water system, et cetera, than before. Yeah. No, I mean, to that's that's propaganda. Yeah, it's, it's definitely propaganda to misreading about Syrian society and what happened in Syrian history and how there was other ideologies and other people that were, you know, that developed this and Assad took over. So, and regardless, I mean, if we're going to play with that argument, regardless, it's how is that different from the common phrase that uh, was used about Mussolini, that he had the trains run on time? You know, that old cliche. Absolutely. So, okay, you know, it's the trains running on time thing. So I must accept, you know, fear and, you know, torture and people being raped in prison. And, you know, uh, uh, sieges and starvation and, you know, so many things because, you know, yeah, he gave me toilet paper. <laughs> okay, if, if we play this, if we're going to play with this logic, then these same people who make this argument attack an organization like the White Helmets for being funded by U.S. aid. So what? You know, so I can make this, I, I can make the point and be like, well, you know, at least USA gave the White Helmets money. Is, is any leftist organization giving them money? No. Does this justify anything? Mm -hmm. What are we saying here? You know, what, what, what's the point? I had a question about the the white helmets on 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 my document, and then I decided to take it off because there's already so many questions I want to ask you. But since you bring them up, um, I did have a hard time in my research figuring out what side the white helmets were on, if that's like even an appropriate way to frame the question at all. Um, but who they were exactly and who they were associated with, and if we should be, you know, supporting and funding their work. Uh, okay. I think what people misunderstand about the White Helmets is that uh, why were the White Helmets created? What happened? One of the things that people forget is that uh, humanitarian action and emergency work was criminalized by the Assad regime in areas under opposition control. So basically, if a doctor or first responder went from an Assad, you know, controlled side to the opposition held side, uh, you're not allowed to do that, whether you're the Red Cross or whatever. So this idea of impartiality was already broken then. So you had a, a gap, a need, right, in opposition held areas where people were underneath the rubble. So someone had to pull them out of the rubble, <laughs> right? So this organization was formed, and apparently a lot of the formation and funding came from, you know, Western organizations and Western institutions and Western governments. And the leadership of the White Helmets, at least, the leadership represents a certain political line in terms of what's happening in Syria, where they are naturally against Assad, but they seek, you know, Western intervention for that. But we can still disconnect the leadership from the people on the ground. Because to me, at least, a lot of the people, white helmets on the ground, are, are actually heroes because they're helping people. I mean, obviously, some of them have affiliations or ties to Islamic fundamentalist groups because that's what's on the ground. 
and it happens and i don't justify it because yes they do some of them have been on ground where shitty like horrible things happen and they should be held accountable but there still is a need because there are people under the rubble airstrikes are happening so we need to take that into account and the analogy i like to make is the syrian arab red crescent because i remember there was a period in 2011 2013 where a lot of people were attacking the Syrian Arab Red Crescent because its leadership was tied to the Assad regime. You know, it's very in close contact. So therefore, they were smeared as an entire, like, entire institution is just, you know, a shitty institution and lackeys to the government. But that's not true, because if you talk to people within, there are some with the government and some aren't, and they're trying to just help Syrians. It's the same thing with the White Helmets. So we need to take that into account. Now, when we like crit- criticize the funding and the uh, of the organization, like the joke I made earlier, is there a left aid? Is there, you know, a progressive money fund that we can send? Because the only way to 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 remove Western influence or Western meddling is to fund, right? Is to monopolize the money, because these people need the money. And money comes with attachments. So to break the ideological or problematic attachments, we need to give them financial independence. Or if you have a problem, then please feel free to develop your own first responder organization and go help people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And if you want to stop the white helmets, in my opinion, stop the reason death they exist, which is the bombing, the shelling, Mm -hmm. the house collapsing on human bodies. We need to take that into account. And we also need to be, you know, nuanced and complex in terms of what we see with institutions. Like I say, I'm, I have issues with the, he- the politics and, and discourse of the senior heads of the White Helmets, just like I have it with the Syrian Arab Red Cross, Crescent. But I support the, the, the cadre on the ground, the people that are trying to save lives. I think we should support them. You know? I, I do. I do. And we can go into much detail about the problems of both organizations and use examples. But I feel that I'm, I, I have made the general point. And I hope it's clear. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear. And that actually leads to my next question, which was very highly requested both on the video that we did together and also when I uh, reached out to our listeners on Facebook this time around, um, is the question of should Westerners be supporting uh, the resistance and the the communalist experiment of the Kurds. Also, I wanted to ask you for your thoughts on Anna Campbell's death and whether more resistance like this should exist in the future. So, so for the listeners who might not know much about the situation with Anna Campbell, and admittedly, I'm I'm one of those people who needs to be more educated about it. Um, But Anna Campbell was a British anarchist, feminist, and prison abolitionist activist who fought with the Kurdish Women's Protection Unit, the YPJ, in Syria. And she was the first British woman to die fighting with the Kurdish forces in Rojava in 2018. So do you think that more resistance like this should exist? Do you think that um, the Kurdish experiment is a a good one for leftists to support and just i'd like to get your general take on that i mean it's 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 a very complicated uh discussion i'm gonna try and jump into it i have to say a few things my first caveat is that i support 
Kurdish self-determination, just like I support the self-determination of any and all communities in the region, if not the world. I think that's very important to say. Secondly, I do think that there is a major issue in terms of the Rojova experiment because I feel that a people outside have projected their own desires and ideas of what it is. To be frank, the area is dominated by the PYD, and that is a political Kurdish party. And that political Kurdish party has its problems, from whether uh, being oppressive towards opposition groups within it, Kurdish or otherwise, because it wants to maintain control, or the fact that it's collaborated with the Syrian regime and the Russians for different reasons, or the fact that it's collaborating and fighting side by side with U.S. forces. So... We've got a problem here. You've got the illusion of the creation of a leftist utopia, but in collaboration with imperialist forces. So there's an irony there. So we need to also understand that complexity. And at the same time, uh, we need to think about what is a better way to be in solidarity or pushing and supporting self-determination of the Kurds and the Arabs and whoever else is in the area. And I don't think Rojova is it. From what I've been saying, you know, like the examples of that, the fact that the PYD operates the way it operates, and people need to look into that. The alliances and the tactics and the military choices it's made, people need to look into that and to make a decision. Now, what should Westerners do? I mean, I don't think at this point of time, that Westerners should rush in to join uh, the fight on the ground. Because all I'm seeing are foreign people coming into, you know, the country that is mine and fighting for their ideologies, regardless of, you know, what I or others feel about it. And I think people need to be careful. I mean, what Anna did was brave. I think it was absolutely brave. And what I understand of her as a character, she was an incredible person. Mm-hmm. But you see, I can see from your face that you're a bit hesitant, and, mm-hmm. and it's weird for me to say that because ideologically, it is you know you sort of have affinity with Anna, and I do personally. I do. I'm I agree with the principles of feminism and anarchism and so forth. I have that affinity, but I also try to take a step back. What does this mean? And I don't know. I don't have answers. What should a person outside do? I mean, you could provide support by talking about it by giving you know space and platforms for people on the ground with different certain communities to talk about their experience and see what happens what works at the same time i'm also you know interested in this idea of solidarity where a person you know goes in and fights with people on the ground like the spanish civil war is a classic one or there are similarities with you know the international solidarity movement with palestinians on the ground you know there are similar examples But we have to be careful when there is manipulation and exploitation for a specific political goal that you might not be with or you're unwittingly being played for, you know, whoever it is. We have to be aware of that. And I think and I and and I always try to recommend that the best way you can support our fights and our struggle is to fight at home. 
You want to create an anarchist utopia? Do it in your backyard. Because if you do it right, and we do it right, we can connect later. I don't think it helps at the moment to come. Because there are too many people, you know, there are too many people on the ground already. There are too many guns, and I want less guns. And I want people, you know, like, please just back off uh, uh, and support my cause, you know, support talking about it, highlight the crimes that everyone is doing, and, and fight the struggle in your home. Because I think there is sort of, it's sort of like, colonialism in many ways it's like or the orient is a career because you're coming as you know a scandinavian or or a french or a british person and you're fighting you know in this exotic lands that is syria that's that's uncomfortable isn't it i mean it's it's a civilizing mission in many ways and people might be upset that i say this but it can be not that you know what's happening on the ground isn't interesting the feminist movements and and the discourse, but let's not also forget the ugly side that's happening here. So I think that we need to demystify the whole idea, idea of Rojova, because there is a sort of market that's happening. And I've seen ads by or groups, leftist groups in L.A. or the videos, the propaganda videos they create. And it makes me super uncomfortable. And I feel like this is not what I know and what I've heard about what's happening on the ground and there should be something better because I think this is causing you know uh, it's gonna not end well for many people yeah that was that was very interesting to hear I I don't know I've been sort of cautious to give my thoughts on it in general just because it's true that it does feel very civilizing in a way to go fight, to try to raise awareness for a cause back at home when there is so much work to do in our own backyards. And especially when we're seeing Western countries shutting out borders. And there's like a sort of irony about that as well. Yeah, exactly. And let's not forget what really helped that sort of movement explode let's say was kobani the fight for kobani you know and isis was the enemy and we have to go after isis so it fits in a sort of orientalist this is the symbolic representation of misogyny savagery barbarism fundamentalism and we're gonna go fight that you know for a leftist utopia and then i'm like okay that's great you know all for you but what are you gonna do about Assad? why are you fighting side by side with him He's a fascist dictatorship that has annihilated a lot of people. Why are you fighting side by side with the American Are they forces? really fighting side by are side not? with Assad? Oh, yeah. They've had, you know, alliances and understandings and collaborations, you know. Uh, the Assad, Assad's forces are in Hasake, in the middle. They're there. Their airport is open. They bring shipment of weapons. There's an understanding. They're literally fighting, you know, the, the, the PYG and the SDF are fighting side by side with U.S. Special Forces. Are U.S. Special Forces a symbol of progressiveness? Are they a symbol of feminism and, and, and uh, leftist anarchist utopia? No, these are, these are, you know, U.S. Special Forces who have overthrown, <laughs> you know, these places. So it's like, okay. Uh, if you're not, if you know, you're not going to fight against them, then I have to question your whole, you know, propaganda. 
I do. I have to question it. And the fact that, you know, people are highlighting the case of Anna, I think that's interesting as well because of who she is. You know, she's a white woman. Her face looks very soft and, you know, sweet. So it's iconic, you know, there's an iconic image to it. But you don't know the names of hundreds of other people that have died, whether, you know, Kurdish or Syrian or are still dying or Palestinian Syrian. There's a lot of brave stories, you know. There's a lot of bravery in Syria. And I say this very frankly, there's bravery whatever side you stand on. There's a lot of brave stories. We don't know many of their names or faces because, you know, there are certain faces and names that are more marketable. You know, and I'm, I'm saying this very diplomatically, there are. At the same time, she was a person that was killed, you know, and I can see why it would be interesting to talk about her her case. I, I can see that, but I, I, I don't mind, like personally, I don't mind if someone talks about her case, but adds context, you know, like you can't just end the sentence with, oh, she died. There has to be a comma and more in, in the conversation when talking about her. You know, and I think that's the problem here, where the the conversation about Anna uh, ends with the fact that, oh, she's a brave person that went and died without going into, you know, all everything else. And I just find it fascinating because I can guarantee you that the foreign people that died on the side of ISIS have their own audience who, you know, lionizes them and talks about them, which I think is very, it's fascinating. You know, it's it's what... And this is normal because we human beings, you know, like our cliques, you know, likes, uh, like our yeah. groups and our From stories. what I've read, she was very vocal about going to fight in Syria and with the YPJ in order to raise awareness about the conflict that was going on over there. Like, I don't think, it, at least in, in the statements that I've seen that she released before she went to fight, it was very much about like bringing attention to what is happening and not so much centering it on herself. And I think that if that's an excellent point, and I think if people want to respect her spirit, to do is to do just that, you know, to try to speak as accurately and frankly about what's happening on the ground. And uh, that means if the regime commits a crime, you speak about that. If ISIS commits a crime, if the YPG commits a crime, and they do, they, that they do, I guarantee it. Whether they have an accountability system to deal with it is another question, but it's very clear that they do operate in very problematic ways. And one can say that, you know, uh, the use of feminism is also being exploded in many ways. I mean, it's militarized, and I find that very fascinating. Not that I'm against the use of violence. I mean, I'm for, you know, violence as a tactic because it's natural. You need to use it. But we also have to be aware of the uh, how we talk about violence and how we code it with something that, you know, is more digestible to an audience. Oh, look at our women fighting. Look how they stand with their... Machine guns, and they look so, you know, fantastically photogenically shot. And here they are fighting against men that want to put them in the kitchen or just, you know, force them to pop out babies. Uh, we, that is, 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 is worrying in many ways. And I think this is a conversation that should happen in terms of is feminism being used as a military tool? 
And I think that's a fascinating one. I would, I, I take the position that yes and no, <laughs> you know, that's what I would argue. I, I can say mm -hmm. both in many ways. And that goes into the whole PYG. And I can understand why people are very fascinated, but be careful. I mean, let's not forget that with Israel, for example, the kibbutz system was presented as a socialist utopia. But what was the kibbutz in, in Israel? It was basically a tool to entrench, plaster over, and hide the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. So, yeah, you need to think about that. And like I said, all that, I'm completely for Kurdish self-determination. I am. Of course, one has to be. And I think that when is separate from When you were talking about a hypothetical kind of leftist coalition that could be funded, they're not necessarily the group that we should put all of our hopes behind. No, I think, I think, uh, uh, no, you don't put your, your hopes on, and you don't put your eggs in one basket. You never do that. <laughs> never, ever do that. Uh, but no, I don't think uh, you can support them if you want to go right ahead. It's not gonna, you know, people will do what they want to do. I think that we need to start developing another group, whether this group exists or not. And I would point to certain organizations that do exist. But I think it's something that maybe we need to think about building as a coalition internationally. And this is a whole. Do you want to talk about some discussion. of those groups that you were you were? Uh, I, for me, I tend to, you know, uh, when I think about what groups exist in terms of political, I don't see many, and I think we lack that. So it's hard to support any group that is political. I would say that what's really important to support are, at the moment at least, are groups that are trying to do medical work on the ground, or groups that are trying to provide education, or I would say uh, try to support groups in your hometown, hometown and places that are fighting mm -hmm. for refugees, you know, because these are immediate and these need help now in terms of like developing an organization within Syria to fight for Syrian self-determination. Uh, we Syrians, whoever our you know, ethnicity are, should be working on that. And I feel that the involvement of someone from outside is basically coming from a position of being an ally, which means that know your place in many, in many ways. You know, please don't dominate the conversation. Just tell us, help us, guide us. Let us know if we're fucking up, but don't uh, take over the mic, monopolize the action, or lecture us and tell us what to do. So you need, we need something much more complex. But in terms of what to do, I mean, like I said, you have organizations already in your places that can help. Refugee rights, medical care, uh, education, uh, these things, because these matter. Because I think that the conflict is a holistic one and a long one. And we need help to be prepared for that long, long holistic battle. That holistic war. I yeah, say. absolutely. You know? Does that what make do sense? What do you think about organizations like Doctors Without Borders, for example? a good organization to support definitely they do important medical work on the ground that's very impactful and i would say if you're wondering is it an organization to donate to yeah 100 percent, 
100%, because they do excellent work, not only in Syria, but elsewhere. And, and, and this is why I find medical work so interesting, you know, because it's definitely an avenue in the sphere that is incredible. It's so impactful and so life-saving, and there is like a political potential about it. You'd be surprised how political a doctor can be when he sees or she sees the types of wounds, right? So here is something that is very powerful. I mean, if you want to be a leftist organization and you want to have influence anywhere, send your doctors, man. <laughs> you know, send your doctors. And this is why Cuba, what Cuba does is very fascinating. I think they, they don't have the resources to do a lot of it, but that's quite a powerful thing when you're, you know, suing someone up. Yeah, and they it's, it's like incredible. send their doctors all over the world. Because they're so medically, right. like, their medical expertise is so strong. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So exactly. last interview, yeah. you said that open, opening up Western borders for Syrian refugees was the most urgent and effective way to help Syrian people today. Um, and over the last year, we have seen country after country moving in the opposite direction, so actually in France, just a few months ago, there was, I mean, this is just an example, but the law Asile uh, Immigration, which is like asylum and immigration law, which basically reduces the number of days that refugees can be in France to be regularized, like before they're expulsed again. <laughs> I don't know if that made sense, but basically they used to have 120 days to get their papers and orders, which already is such a short time. Like I can barely... I don't know, like file my own taxes when I have a year to do so, um, let alone if you're a refugee not speaking the language and being totally mistreated. So now they have 90 days and also it legalizes the detention of children in like detention camps and basically it's just fucking horrible. And I also recently came across an article or a statistic that the United States in the last year has accepted 11 Syrian refugees in total. Yeah, yeah, this is true. They only accepted 11, so... 11? Hooray. What the fuck? Yeah, what do you expect? Yeah. I mean, I knew it was low and it was horrific, but 11 really just hammers home how just absurd... You know, and if, if you follow the media, you are supposed to be scared that they're just flowing in by the thousands every day, and then you hear that there's literally been 11 let in since you know, over the last 365 days. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about what the state of the Syrian refugee crisis is today and what options people in exile face currently and how how do you think this crisis will evolve over the coming years? I think it's uh, it's been horrendous the past year. I mean, as you quite uh, succulently explained it's it's gotten worse <laughs> most nations have created more and more barriers and walls this is all justified and reinforced with a xenophobic racist discourse on refugees a discourse which by the way is very timeless and has been used on so many different communities from italians and jews in the u.s to uh haitians in brazil to you know Turks in Germany, it's been happening for, for you know, the, the same type of, uh, of, of fears and hysteria that is unproven, unproven when you look at actual fact. 
and data. You know, the xenophobia, the fear of our society, our purity, the securitization and all that jazz. So we're seeing lots of that. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, people talking about sending refugees back to so-called safe and de-escalated zones, which is, you know, double speak because no, they're not safe nor Mm -hmm. de-escalated. So you have that talk. So a lot of people are actually, or a lot of government policymakers are thinking of, yes, let Assad win so we can send refugees back. This is the mentality, right? And you hear that constantly. Yeah, even this whole idea of sending them back, like back to what? They didn't, they didn't leave because they were like, you know, needed a vacation. It's like they left like a war-torn danger zone. Exactly. And I mean, a refugee, you know, has the right to choose if they want to go back or not. And they should be provided all the the infrastructure and support for whatever choice they take, whether they go back or not. At the same time, quite recently, I think around two, three weeks ago, uh, the Assad government passed a law that basically takes away land and homes of individuals that do not resign up. It's something along those lines where basically disposition can happen for people that are refugees. So there's actually a fear that uh, a lot of people are just, you know, going to lose everything because they don't have the paperwork to prove that that home is my home now. It's it's uh, unsurprising. I think this is actually part of what the Assad regime wants to do to remove uh, individuals that were against them, to recraft society in that way. I mean, it's less numbers in a country, right? Because <laughs> let's not forget the population really increased astronomically over the last 40 years so i wouldn't be surprised if it's in the logic or rationale of the Assad regime to eliminate numbers by the sheer fact of disposition not letting them back in um so there's that aspect and the numbers aren't really going less i mean a lot of people because of the increase of violence and i think 2017 saw one of the highest rates of civilian deaths so violence is still happening so people are moving around and leaving Uh, and the situation has gotten worse with the eu turkey deal for example that has really created or entrenched fortress europe has pushed back uh the our outsourced the the refugee problem to other states as they call it, refugee problem. For me, it's not a refugee problem, it's a refugee right. So I would still say that the fight within different countries, and I'm talking about not just in Europe, but in North America, Canada, the US, South America, wherever, is the fight about you know opening the borders, mm-hmm. that refugees are welcome, regardless of who they are. And that fight is still relevant and still urgent and still necessary. And it's not happening i mean it's happening and there are many interesting beautiful cases but it needs to happen in a very larger way and i can say that for example the stop the war coalition they should just cease to exist because they are a complete failure and become a refugees and be enveloped in a refugees welcome coalition because if you can pull out so many people to protest you know the U.S. attack on an army, half-empty army base or something, then you should be fucking protesting every day to force your politicians and your policymakers to have better laws 
and treatment of refugees and migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Duh, <laughs> you know, you know, it's like it's it's simple, but they don't give a shit, and that's why, just like you know, the policymakers don't give a shit, and people are you know suffering. So I think the struggle still continues, and it's still very urgent. No matter what, it's still super urgent and hasn't changed. On the contrary, it's even more urgent now. It's horrific in France. I mean, I I can just speak from yeah. like what I you know what I know just just because I live here. But and then you have this buffoon of a of a of a president in France talking about saving Syrians. I mean, go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like literally sorry, I'm being go very vulgar. Go fuck yourself, man. And this guy is you know supporting the Israelis doing, and he sends arms to Saudi Arabia. Nah, please go fuck yourself. He is, yeah, go oh, fuck yourself. Nah. Disgusting. And this is supposedly the left, right? This is supposed to be a centralist. He's a right winger. Oh yeah, he's supposed to be a centrist. I feel like, yeah. even though that's the like, campaign that he ran on, like neither, like neither left nor right. I'm just like a centrist and reasonable. Yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. I think that's being demystified more and more. He's trying to run France like you know a CEO yeah. and basically just neoliberalizing every last supposedly socialist institution we have and also just the hypocrisy of as you say like you know claiming to want to help syrians when in france you can be (laughs) arrested for serving warm meals to refugees like over the whole last winter it was illegal you know to serve free meals and to serve to to hand out like sleeping bags and tents and things to refugees like all the areas that used to have refugees in paris have been just completely drained by the police and huge rocks have been set up so that people can't like sleep under bridges anymore basically like fighting off refugees like if they were you know like it reminds me of those spikes that we put on our windowsills to keep pigeons from coming in yeah yeah i was just thinking about that exactly i was thinking about those spikes uh, on benches for the homeless it's like are you ridiculous (laughs) like what the hell and then you want to make a speech about helping and saving syrians and 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 yeah just give me a break. Yeah, it was really reminding me of what you were saying that that the Assad regime was making it illegal for um, certain doctors to cross over onto borders. Onto yeah, it was completely illegal. It was terrorism. That's what they sold it. It was terrorism to provide medical care to areas under the opposition's control. And if people think that's a stretch and that's horrific which they should like look at our own governments here they're doing the same things exactly and just because they're doing the same thing doesn't mean you accept the other oh right absolutely. like we have to be careful about what what about is them right both are shit both are unacceptable and both need to be struggled against mm-hmm. clearly clearly and just because something is law doesn't mean it's just nope. because the convergence between law and justice most often than not, is a very rare convergence, you know, <laughs> when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a very, very kind way yeah. to put it. So the next, I think, this is the last question. It's it's a big one, right? Well, no, there's, there's a few more. But <laughs> one one yeah, okay. question that I wanted to ask you, because this is this is something that... Um, that was asked, you know, under under in the comments of our video, and definitely again when I solicited mm. solicited questions on Facebook, is um, do you think it was the Assad regime or the rebels who employed chemical weapons, or does that even matter? And is this being used as a ploy to legitimate to legitimate foreign led regime change? In your opinion, okay. 
Do I think the Syrian Assad regime has used chemical weapons over the course of seven years? Yes, and there is evidence for that. The OPCW has already linked the regime to at least three incidents of usage. It's also linked to ISIS for the usage of mustard gas. So there's that. Does this mean that chemical attacks are happening in Syria? Yes, they are. The Syrian regime has done it. We know this. There are so many different evidence to link that. Mm -hmm. Does this matter? No. <laughs> Why? Because uh, most of the deaths and devastation and, and horror comes from, quote-unquote, conventional weapons. A missile, a mortar, a bullet. So I think there is sort of, uh, uh, let's say... I'm trying to, I'm, I'm struggling to find the words. I'm thinking of like somehow a romanticization of weapons. I don't know what the word, the correct word would be. But yes, chemical weapons are like, oh, so barbaric and so over the top. Yeah, it's horrendous. And it's a horrendous way to die. And I've watched the videos of people dying from, from you know, being gassed. Uh, and it's horrendous to die in many other ways. At the same time, uh, this won't change a person's mind. Because like I said, the Syrian regime has used chemical weapons. Does this has a Western-led regime change happen? No, because the West doesn't care. They will only, and let's not forget that Western governments themselves have used chemical attacks or you know weapons of mass destruction when they see fit. Uh, talking about this topic, I think there are some problems in the discussion because, for example, a lot of the sort of defense against you know, saying that the Syrian regime has used chemical attacks is a fact is a very simple question. Why would they use chemical weapons when they're winning? You hear this a lot. Mm -hmm. I think this is a very hilarious question because it can be answered in very two simple ways. One, because you win faster. <laughs> very clearly, you win faster using chemical weapons in a theater of war. And two, why not? Why wouldn't it? I mean, think of other examples. The U.S. uses two nuclear warheads on Japan, or atomic bombs, I should say, on Japan when it won World War II. Why did it do that? And you have people that today argue that, say, oh, I believe this is a conspiracy theory. Or, you know, for example, why would the Israelis snipe Palestinians on the border indiscriminately? Why? They're winning. They have them encased in a jail cell. Why would they shoot them? You know what I mean? You see what I'm trying to say here. I think that we need to take this point seriously. Atrocity is happening. The Syrian regime, regardless if you feel outraged about the use of chemical attacks, there is a lot that the Syrian regime has done. I'm talking about rape. I'm talking about torture. I'm talking about executions. I'm talking about starvation. So if you weren't outraged from all that, I don't think you'll be outraged if they gassed people, and they have gassed people. It, it, it's, there is enough evidence to point it. Kalas, you know, I think the conversation is over. And this whole, like, uh, idea of false flag, I mean, sure, I agree. Uh, the U.S. lied about Iraq. That doesn't mean that the U.S., Mm -hmm. is lying about this. Let's not mix the two. And even then, let's free, not forget other examples in history. For example, I'll give you two. The fascist uh, government in Spain 
He used to say about Guernica, and you know what Guernica is, right? It's very famous. Pablo Picasso did a painting. It hangs in the UN Security Council. We, you know, talk about Guernica. The fascist government used to say, and it was backed by other, you know, uh, newspapers, international newspapers, saying that this was a lie, that the anarchists and leftists mm-hmm. bombed and burnt the city itself as propaganda. They said this, and they maintained this line until the 70s, and people bought it. Today, we know this is not true. I'll give you another example uh, from history. When the Soviet Union was fighting against Finland, this was, I think, in the 1930s or 40s. I, 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 but anyways, they're fighting against Finland. They had embargoed the country from food and water and resources, and, you know, the tanks were going in. And as part of its propaganda, Molotov, who I think was the foreign representative at the time, was saying that the actually the Russians weren't striking and, and sending artillery into Finland. They were dropping food, food baskets and wine. <laughs> so the Finns, in response... Uh, said, okay, here are our grenades. These are, you know, our food baskets back to you. And here are Molotov cocktails. That's how the word Molotov cocktail came back. It was an attack on propaganda, on the lie that the Soviets were saying that, no, we're not bombing people, we're feeding them. That's how Molotov cocktail was, you know, created. As a sarcastic pushback against propaganda. Interesting. I had no idea. Oh, yes. So the point I'm trying to make is, I agree. There's a lot of fabrication, fabrications and propaganda that happens in war, you know, like this idea of false flag or manipulation. But most likely than not, an atrocity is happening by the people we think it's happening. This is very true. Mm-hmm. It's very true. And just because it's being reported by the New York Times or The Guardian doesn't make it less true. The difference is that The Guardian and The New York Times highlights one type of atrocity more than another, according to their ideological leanings. This doesn't mean that the atrocity doesn't exist. It highlights and emphasizes and pushes that. But the atrocity does exist. And that's the point I'm trying to say. And that's something we need to realize. Why are Western governments drawing a red line about chemical weapons and not barrel bombs, you know, like shelling? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We can say that. Again, I am against Western intervention. I'm just playing with this argument here. Mm-hmm. Or this idea that, oh, the West only cares about, you know, the West is, is, is going to aim for regime change in Syria. And I argue that, no, it's not. Because the West is not, and when we need to define what you mean by the West, because there are so many different countries, and even within their countries, there are different political parties and, you know, departments and intelligence military whatever whatever and they're not even in agreement about what to do with Assad because a lot of them are for him staying so this concept that there is a western conspiracy for regime change say wait no i don't think there is you need to prove that statement and you could show me a link uh, you know a wikileaks link from the cia document from whatever year but that still doesn't prove it because <laughs> i look at other documents and other actions Because again, if the West wanted to do regime change in Syria, they would have done it in 2012. They are not going to do it now. 
what they will probably do is see how they can collaborate and work with whoever they can on the ground in Syria. And they might work to, you know, annoy those that they can't work with. But regime change? How? And then secondly, as well, is what are you talking about? If you're talking about, you know, uh, Syrian sovereignty and freedom, that's already gone. <laughs> I mean, you already have U.S. soldiers on the ground, U.S. bases, Iranian bases, uh, Russian bases. So what sovereignty? What are you talking about? You're not really, you don't really care about my freedom or my self-determination because it's gone. The Turks are there. The Iranians are there. The Russians. So mm -hmm. what sovereignty? What are you talking about? So again, this discourse, and I understand it comes from the experience of Iraq, but let's also not forget that what Iraqis were saying is that no to Saddam and no to war. They were saying both. And let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. Like this binary that we're always thrown, you know? Oh, we are against Western intervention, so we must support Assad. No, you go against both. And let's not follow this silly binary, because it's no different from, you know, the U.S. war on terror uh, logic of us versus them. You want to be a better uh, a progressive thinker or activist? We cannot use the same ideology or the same rationality or discourse as empire uses we have to use nuance we have to be complex we cannot accept absolutism or essentialism because how is that different from the system it's not mm -hmm. going back to what you were saying in the beginning as well the this binary between supporting assad or supporting like Western intervention is a false one just because a lot of like, you know, the rise of Assad and his, his continuation of power is also a product and so closely tied with Western intervention and meddling in the Middle mm -hmm. East. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget uh, a history where his father was uh, part of the coalition, like Syrian tanks were part of the coalition that attacked Iraq in 1990. Uh, the son, Bashar, was involved in the torture rendition program with the CIA. It was like a very famous cliche quote of, you want uh, someone to be questioned, send them to Jordan. You want someone to be tortured, send them to Syria. And the CIA was sending people to Syria because they are outsourcing torture. Uh, Assad as well also embraces neoliberal economics. I mean, there was a very famous interview of him we're not famous, so at least for me, it's very notable. I think it was around 2007, eight, somewhere around then, where he talked about turning Syrian, uh, Syria's economy into Singapore. Hmm. Singapore, which is hardly, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know an, a leftist, anti-capitalistic right. model. It's Dubai, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. So again, what are we talking about here? And how are we defining anti-imperialism? Because to me, we need to know what imperialism is to be anti-imperialism, correct? And the Russians, to me, look very imperialistic, so why would I rush to support them? And there is this ridiculousness, you know, with this mentality. Oh, I hate CNN, so I'm going to listen to Russia today. No, these are both propaganda outlets that are bullshitting you. <laughs> like, what are you saying to me? It's a binary. It's us versus them. And, and, and we have to break that. That's the trap. That's the mm -hmm. huge trap here. 
So with with that said, um, this this might lead nicely into one of the one of the listener questions. So now I'm entering the portion of the interview where the questions are even a bit more disjointed than they than they were uh, up until this point, um, because these are questions that weren't necessarily covered by what I've already asked you. So number one is, do you think it is correct to call the violence in Syria a civil war? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I use the term civil war uh, just for simplicity's sake, but it's a very interesting debate because what is it? It's it's a it's a sort of multi-layered sort of war because you have an uprising versus a dictatorship. You have a proxy war between regional and international forces. You have an occupation. So you have the Russians and the Turks and the Iranian bases and the American bases. So there's an occupation, and obviously the Israelis on the Golan, which is an age-old occupation as well. You have foreign fighters coming in, so you have that aspect, whether it's the Islamic sort or the you know, uh, right-wing militias that are coming to support Assad, or the left-wing groups that are going to the PY, PYG. Uh, you have a sectarianism involved, you have classism, you have an urban versus rural uh, a collision. So you have like a sort of post-colonial collapse of statehood. So you have so many things and you can describe it so many ways. So I think uh, maybe this the answer to that question is yes and no. <laughs> you know, you can call it a civil war and you can't. And maybe that's not a satisfying answer, but it's the truth. Maybe I think the best way to say it, it's a civil war, comma, and you know yeah i've heard civil war and armed conflict used like very interchangeably it's true that civil war i have had the thought before where i um i worry that it misrepresents what's actually going on because as you stated there's so much international intervention right and it also assumes two equal sides you know fighting mm -hmm. but no i mean the Assad government and its allies and the russians are quite powerful they have you know, they're much more powerful for, than the armed opposition groups in many ways. Mm -hmm. So I guess the hesitancy to use the term civil war is the idea that um, there's equality in the type of violence mm -hmm. and destruction when there isn't. Because again, if you look at, if you want to compare side by side, look at the satellite images of Isrutan and what it looks like to uh, Damascus where the rebel groups were shelling. You know, they're sending their mortars, you know, hitting indiscriminately. So the level of destruction and the uh, the magnitude of violence is not equal. So I know the hesitancy when people say uh, you shouldn't use this, uh, the term civil war. You know, there is the, that implication. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the Palestinian-Israel conflict, like how I really try to say all the time like it's an Israeli occupation yeah, because yeah, saying exactly. it's a conflict makes it seem like there are two sides and the two sides are equal and really, you know, it's a, it's a question of point of view, which side you fall on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I prefer using what's happening in Palestine to call it an increment genocide, like... Uh, the Israeli professor Elon Pepe calls it, and I think he makes a very good case for that label. Mm. So I think we need to think about the labeling and what the implications are and really understand the cases for it.
I don't know if you can find one label to really uh, uh, encompass everything that's happening in Syria. And I don't think we would need a label. And it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay if there are multiple la- labels. It's all right if you, you know, have a hundred hyphens to whatever word you're creating. Yeah. It's, I get what we're trying to do, but, you know, let's mm-hmm. not get lost yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with that answer. While understanding label is power. I get, I get that label is power, but at the same time, let's not also be obsessed. It gets kind of dog, too dogmatic when we get just really entrenched in trying to figure out like the vocabulary around it. Yeah, but I do at yeah. the same time. Yeah, yeah, at the same time, I I do understand kind of the interest behind asking that question, um, just because it seems to mischaracterize the nature of right, the, the right. Syrian war, or just even calling it like a Syrian conflict or. Or uh, another th- another term I don't like is the refugee crisis. Like as it yeah. sort of like depoliticizes yeah. where it comes from. It's like, oh, there's just a crisis. We don't really know, you know, why. It's, it's like an act of God, you know, like, yeah, it's like a tsunami. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. exactly. <laughs> it's a man-made crisis. It's, it's, it's a European crisis. <laughs> you know? I think it's a European policy crisis. Let's call it that. Yeah. Or like even as, the housing crisis, the environmental crisis. It's like these aren't just like crises that are happening out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, there's very much a connection between these various crises. And there's actually... I mean, if you're looking at something, you know it's coming, <laughs> right? Like even the housing crisis, you're paying attention. You're like, holy fuck, the housing bubble is going to explode. Yeah. And then the mainstream media and policymakers are like, oh, we just didn't know. No, you fucking you fucking know. You just don't care. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. This idea that we need to speculate on, you know, the instability that might arise at any moment, completely out of nowhere. Yeah, totally. So another question. um, I'm going to read one question in particular, but there were actually two other ones that that were basically asking the same, uh, a similar thing. I like. Um, So we got a message saying, "I keep hearing about this theory." Um, about the war in Syria, that it's supposedly over Saudi Arabia wanting to put a pipeline. I'm sorry, I'm seeing yeah, your I face. Yeah, I know about this. So I know about this. It's a ridiculous theory. Uh, I mean, no. Let me finish <laughs> reading it. Um, so, okay. Uh, it's supposedly over Saudi Arabia wanting to put a pipeline through Syria. I got the chance to ask someone from Egypt about it, and they said it wasn't completely out of the question, but they didn't see why they would bother. And I got, yeah, two other questions asking me if, you know, the war in Syria was, was about gas pipelines. So this definitely seems to be a, a common worry. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that has come up because I think there was, going back in 2011, 2012, there was like someone, like a meme that was going around about pipeline or some kind of article that was talking about this idea of a pipeline. Uh, and no, the, the simple answer is no, the war isn't about a pipeline. If, if to use the example of Saudi Arabia, wanting a pipeline to go up through Syria, why would they? Because, you know, it's easier to go not up, but elsewhere. <laughs> you know, they can go up through Iraq, up through Turkey, you know. So if the Saudis want to do that, what would Syria provide? And at the same time, no, it, it sort of uh, simplifies and ignores a lot of what's happening on the ground because it's not about a pipeline. It isn't. And whose pipeline is it anyways? Like, I, 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 like I've heard so many different theories and ideas. Like some people say it's a plan to get you know, a pipeline going uh, because after Syria would be Iran. 
So there would be a pipeline going from like Central Asia out. But no, I, I don't think uh, you can say anything really. And I don't think that really is why we're seeing what's happening in Syria is happening. It's not about a pipeline. It's about more than that. There's something else going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not simply about resources because there's a lot happening as well. I mean, even Iraq, I, uh, oil played a huge part in the decision making of the neocons. But there is more than just oil in the question. There is an issue about having a foothold in the area, uh, like a military foothold. There is a question of uh, providing more security and defense for the state of Israel, because that was part of the calculation. So there's so many things going that you can't really summarize it to simply a pipeline or oil. And in the Syria case, not really, because uh, it's not like uh, Bashar Assad wouldn't have wanted to build a pipeline from Saudi. I guarantee it. Prior to 2011, he would have done it because he already had Saudi investments in the country. But people forget this one fact that in its history, the Assad regime, and I'm talking about back to his father, Hafez, 1970 till today, it was Saudi Arabia that had provided the most money towards the Assad regime over the decades. Really? Yeah. Yeah, in terms of like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, in terms of money, simple money. So, uh, yeah, I mean, prior to 2011, if there was money involved, yeah, why would Assad say no to a pipeline? So even when you think about it, it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, he was literally providing outsourcing for torture centers for the CIA. Why wouldn't he do a pipeline where he can tax and, you know, skim off the top for him and his family and friends? Yeah, that's a good point. Great deal. So let's let's have a war and make a pipeline? That's a, yeah, no. I mean, a war happens, sure, like, I mean, re natural resources and people will point to, like, other examples, like, you know, the banana plantations or the sugar as impetus for military action in the early 20th century and late 19th century. And natural resources do play a part, but it's not the only part, and there's more. And in this case in Syria, it, an oil pipeline isn't even part of the equation, in my opinion. Okay. Okay, thank you for that answer. Yeah, I um, I think there, the distrust in like, the media and the dominant narrative is so huge today, like understandably, that, yeah, I had no idea what to think about a lot of these theories that are going around. I mean, I understand. Like, I understand the 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 impetus to listen to alternative media and the theories and try to figure out what is the truth because mainstream media mm -hmm. is shit <laughs> you know it tends to be very shit and not really like many most often than not not informative but again that doesn't mean that every meme and everything from alternative media is true or makes sense it is equally as stupid <laughs> in many most often than not cases so along the same lines, we got a question asking if Iran was using Syria for forward defense or as a launching pad for war against Israel. Uh, I mean, clearly in the uh, Iranian uh, regime's perspective, Syria is quite important because it's other than Iraq or, or it's very close to, you know, it's supportive and allied with Iran and Iran's very much encircled. So it's definitely a card and there's many businesses and transaction and 
you know, it's definitely a pressure on uh, the Zionist state. Mm -hmm. Most definitely, it's sort of a card against that as a preventive measure. Because let's not forget that Israel is very belligerent and very uh, aggressive. And they've been trying to start a war with Iran all the time, while Iran's been trying to play it diplomatically. But definitely Syria is a key component for the Iranian regional military strategy. And it's natural for that. Just like Syria uh, for the Saudis is a very interesting component for their own attempts to create a sphere of influence in the region. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there, that does play a part, of course. Of course it mm -hmm. does. And it's why I think uh, they are so adamant at maintaining the regime, right? They're so adamant at supporting it completely, regardless of all the crimes that the the, that the Syrian regime has conducted onto Syrian bodies. And I think uh, this is why I, uh, the Iranian regime will pay for it in many ways. I think down the line, there will be blowback. And at the same time, I do think that there should be some kind of military force to challenge the Israelis because the Israelis have, have, been, have been working over the past decades with a military supremacy. So they got to do a lot of wars and bombings of every, you know, all the neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, this is where I'm torn. I wish the Iranians, you know, would create this deterrent without basically supporting a dictatorship and, and participating in the killing of, of innocent people. And that's the tragedy of it. I mean, uh, in the end, let's not forget that the Iranian uh, regime is a very problematic theological uh, a repressive regime. I mean, in the scheme of things, it's better than Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia is such a low bar. Such a low <laughs> that bar, yeah. It's like an incredible low bar, but that doesn't mean that Iran is a utopia. I mean, it's still a repressive regime, and, and there, uh, I hope the movements that are happening within Iran, and we're talking about the labor strikes that are happening, the 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 other movements that are happening in the country i hope that ties into an anti-war movement within because a lot of the problems in iran while the sanctions that are imposed play a huge role let's not forget that military spending does take away from resources right and the iranians or the iranian regime is willing to throw so much cash and resources to prop up the Assad regime than uh you know subsidizing you know it's society. And I think that is a major issue. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, perfectly. So another question that I received was, do Syrians also empathize with Afghans? Do they feel their oppression allows them to empathize with other people's struggles other than just Palestinians? Do, sol do Syrians solidarize with Afghans or does the oppressed have to be Arab to receive solidarity? I know this is not related to Syrian politics, but it's something that torments me. I see Afghans showing solidarity and compassion for Syrians, but I think it's pretty one-sided. I feel like the world thinks Afghans are undeserving of solidarity. They are the most disenfranchised, colonized people on earth. They suffer all alone. Uh, I kind of agree. <laughs> I kind of agree with the last statement because the Afghans have suffered incredibly since 1979 if not earlier. Can you talk about um, what happened in 1979? Yeah, I, I mean, you had 
the communist government and there was an uprising against it then the soviet union came in and the 80s was a horror a horrendous period because you had a soviet union occupation and a war and fundamentalists being funded by you know the gulf and the americans that just created such a incredible mix there was naturally a localized indigenous uprising against uh, the soviet occupation that also took a religious flavor because that's natural as well and it just got worse and worse i mean like you had the taliban and what happened under the taliban the american war uh, on afghanistan which is still continuing to this day in afghanistan from what i know with friends there is a, a very devastated country i mean it's devastated on so many levels in terms of do g- generally syrians know this i don't I think they kind of do and kind of don't. There are many Syrians that go along the migration trail that inevitably meet up with Afghans. And there are moments of just solidarity within this desperate situation where they learn more about each other. And then there are moments of competition where they're literally fighting against, you know, limited resources and there are clashes. Mm-hmm. So you have a dynamic that is both. There is a certain Syrian communities that have solidarity with their Afghan brothers or sisters, like any other community of a lot of Syrians that just don't know. Now, why why do Syrians immediately go to Palestine? Because it's an issue of proximity, you know, like Palestine is right there. There are Palestinian refugees. So there's a history and understanding and similar language. So that's why. But do I think that we overall should have a better mentality in terms of suffering and a much more openness towards solidarity? Definitely. Are there Syrians that do do that? Yes. And I think more and more uh, of us should do it, Mm -hmm. regardless of who the person or persons are from. There should be immediate solidarity. And I definitely agree that Afghans are one of those communities that are completely ignored they their suffering has been complete it was a whole it was a spotlighted in the media during 2001 for a couple of years and then completely ignored and their suffering still continues to this day let's not forget that afghanistan is the country where the americans horrendously dropped the mother of all bombs mm-hmm. which is basically a conventional type of atomic bomb that isn't an atomic bomb and that is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, a large amount of Afghans are just put in such a horrendous situation. Uh, that is unacceptable. And we should talk about that more and more. And they are treated like shit. The migration, the refugee, uh, the, the policies that deny refugee rights does apply to Afghans as well. That's horrible. And, and, and we should think about that. And I would even say that it goes to a lot of communities. I mean, Eritreans are not part of the picture. Uh, uh, Central African uh, Republic refugees aren't even discussed. Venezuelans today, I mean, what's happening in Venezuela is devastating. A lot of people are refugees now in Colombia and they're suffering. So this is part of a larger problem in terms of human beings paying attention to each other rather than what is convenient or what is in proximity mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to force ourselves to start expanding our gaze and our empathy to as many communities as possible. 
I mean, we can even, you know, regardless of, uh, uh, of you know, national identities, I mean, we can talk about other things like, you know, the, you know, trans, trans uh, genders and what happens to transgenders, you know, and the violence and oppression they face that isn't part of any discourse and how there should be a sort of solidarity with that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, anything else that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, recognizing the interconnectedness of our struggles under this oppressive system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there should be more of that. Are Syrians in general aware? I, I don't know. I don't think so. And I think they should be. There are Syrians that do, and I do want to tell that person. I mean, there are Syrians that do think about this and do talk about this. So, so that's good. I hope there are more. hope that answers that person's question, because I think it's a good one, actually. Yeah, I think there's even more of a disregard for Afghan refugees than there is for Syrian refugees. In, in Paris, you'll see a lot of signs um, of people who live on the street. They'll usually hold cardboard signs saying like Syrian families, Syrian refugees need help. And I've heard that a lot of um, a lot of those people aren't actually Syrian but that which i think is uh yeah it's fine i know about cases like that and i support cases like that if you are uh, uh afghan and it's easier to get your services by saying you're a syrian refugee oh yeah fucking hey do it of course mm-hmm. of course absolutely i get it but yeah. yeah it points to the fact that we that in our collective consciousness right now in this situation there's more empathy and there's more compassion for refugees from syria than refugees it's like yeah it's not about pitting them against one it's like it's all horrific and it's all really fucked up and of course because it's a it's a trend it makes sense to do whatever you can to attract more empathy from your oppressors to get like the basic necessities to live yeah survive 100 percent um, okay, another question is, how have the demographics of Syria changed? What effects will it have on Middle Eastern politics? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting one. I mean, I can say that the demographics have changed by the sheer fact that you know, half the country is refugees and have moved, whether internally displaced or externally. So the question of how much has it changed is really hard. To, to, to really look into or discuss until I think uh, we see it uh, until the you know the gunfire settles because then we see what what was Syria prior to 2011 and what is Syria after and mm-hmm. we will see what the ramifications of that will be in the future and I think there will be a sort of ramification to Middle Eastern politics like Naturally so, when you're talking about a large mass of people being moved around, this will create some kind of shockwave. And it's the same thing in any society, in any situation. I mean, think of the ramifications of a large mass of population like in New Orleans, right? When, when the Hurricane Katrina happened, we have a large mass of people that were pushed out and where they had to settle. That definitely changed things. It changed the di- the demographics of of the of new orleans and the politics of new orleans has changed mm-hmm. naturally speaking so we'll see we need to see it but i do think that yeah definitely demographic changes are happening mm-hmm. and they are happening for multiple reasons whether manufactured or not 
Yeah, I, I like how you keep bringing up other examples. That like really helps me understand everything that you're you're speaking yeah. about. Yeah, I mean it's the only way. It's the only way. I, I try to. I mean they're not perfect analogies, but I try to show that there are these similarities and parallels. Try to think of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the best ways that we can advocate for the injustice that we're trying to fight for is just showing how there are manifestations of these things all over the world. Exactly, because I think it's important to point out that Syria is not exception. Mm -hmm. Syria is the norm. And that's what's terrifying. And, and I feel this about the Israeli occupation of Palestine. There's the sense that it's so complicated and that these names are like foreign and very long and, and that you're never educated enough to, yeah. to have a certain opinion. And that's like very yeah. intimidating when you're talking about it. And so just as much as possible, having humility and understanding that it's not about coming down on a certain side, but rather trying to stand as much as possible in solidarity with the people who are actually on the ground and experiencing the oppression. Right. I think helps you talk about it when you're trying to engage in the issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so lastly, this is our last question. Oh, this is it? Oh, wow, cool. I actually sent sent Yazan a list of like 15 questions before the interview. And I said, okay, well, feel free to tell me which ones you like and which ones you hate. And right away, he said, okay, well, let's just answer all of them, <laughs> which was great. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind because I think it's worth worth answering mm -hmm. any and all questions. I'll try. <laughs> so, so the last one is just if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and about the comics that you've been working on, because we'll link them in the the show notes so people yeah. can check them out. Cool. And you currently live in Beirut, so I wanted to ask what that was like as a Canadian Syrian writer, journalist, and activist. I mean. Uh... Beirut is a fantastic and very callous city. Uh, I think, uh, for me personally, I love Beirut some days and other days I hate it. Uh, and it depends on the day, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Uh, and there's a lot that happens in, in the city. It definitely is very fascinating because it's a nexus point for so many things. It's a stopping off point for so many different characters and individuals. So many different communities come in and out and so many things that whatever happens in the region sort of has its ramifications mm -hmm. in this area, so in the city. So I've been here for around five years now and it's been quite a interesting, uh, enriching, difficult experience. And I don't know... I'm likely here for a bit more. I, I, I don't know how long more because I gave up trying to plan anything because life showed me that uh, any plans you do can just implode. So I'm, I'm, I'm going with it. I'm just going with the flow. So, uh, yeah. Are you ever thinking about going back to Canada? No. I mean, I've been to Canada a couple of times. Like recently I was in Canada in, in autumn and I just... Mm -hmm. I've always I don't I don't see myself there. I don't see myself in Canada, North America, or Europe because I I just want to be in this region. I think uh, there's just so much to do and so much to talk about and so much to deal with that just being in Canada seems. I mean, and I'm sure there's a lot of work there, but it doesn't call to me. Uh, and I just want to be around here and and do whatever I can do here, whether it's just talking about something or doing an action. 
or writing about something or just being around and witnessing something. I, I'd rather just be here because I'm not really a nationalist and I feel like this entire region is sort of my home in many ways I because my life was moving around a lot and, and I'm not really very nationalistic. Uh, so I just, uh, but I, I just have this affinity to this region and I just want to be around and, mm -hmm. and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that makes sense. And can you, can you tell us about the, the comics you've been writing? Oh yeah, totally. Um, so, uh, I'm a huge comic fanatic. I love comics, comic books. I think, uh, I've been reading them since I was a kid in, in, in different languages well, I, I was looking at the pictures because, <laughs> you know, I had like Arabic comics in front of me, which are basically Arabic translations of comics mm -hmm. and even their own production. And there were there was Asterix and Obelix and and Tintin. I, that's what I used to look into. So I really loved comics. And I think it's it's probably one of the best types, best mediums to present information, because you as a reader, your both hemispheres of your brain is sort of engaged. You're looking at something visually, and there is text. Mm, that's true. So I really like that. And as a huge fan, I like through friends that uh, work in the Nib. Like one friend who who is a comic artist and writer. He's an editor in the Nib, and he reached out to me, and uh, and and he's like, "Why don't you do something?" And it was actually another friend who's uh, also a comic writer and artist here in Lebanon that set this up. So. So I started working and writing for the Nib, and it's sort of memoirish type of stories that deal with certain political issues. And I try to be very honest about my own experiences. So it's sort of su sub subjected to my own experience to a topic and my own like history about it. But then I try to ask questions. So mm -hmm. it's for the Nib, which is a, a, a sort of nonfiction comic website that is a sister site of uh, The Intercept. So it's under the First Look Media. And they do a lot of journalistic, political type of comics. So this was a way for me to talk about things that mattered to me and in, in the Arab environment, in the Arab experience, and to try to touch it to an American audience or whoever else. And doing comics, and it, it's so it's so weird that I'm actually producing comics. I write the script, and a friend of mine, who's a fantastic artist, Dadi Rosal. Yeah, the illustrations are oh, he's, awesome. He's, he is uh, a brilliant. So Gadi uh, does comics, and he's been doing comics for a long time. And the fact that I'm working with him is so great. And I've and and it's weird that I'm actually you know doing this as a person that was a fan that I'm literally now producing. It's a learning experience. I'm not perfect. And I'm just trying to cut my teeth because I would love, like, in the future to do more comics, whether fiction or nonfiction, and bring my own perspective from over here. Because I think comics are a powerful medium, and it's definitely booming in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's not forget that, I mean, not many people know this, but comics or comic stories we're part of this region since, I don't know, like the 1930s and even earlier. So there's a history here. So it's cool that I'm part of that. I've been influenced by a lot of American, European, Japanese type of comics and reading Arab comics as well. And I, I just love that I'm doing this. I'm doing it now. And it's and, 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 and yeah, I'm trying to touch a lot of things when I do a story about a topic that is 
political and personal. And I think that is an interesting experience to convey that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder if my, the readers are enjoying it sometimes because I feel like I can be very navel gazing. It's sort of like my observations, but it seems it seems to resonate with people. I don't know. It seems to. Something about, yeah, having text accompanied by like a cartoon image is super powerful. I mean, that's like what memes are yeah, a lot of the yeah, times, right, right? right? There's something just instantly engaging. Exactly, exactly. One of the best sort of journalists I ever read is Joe Sacco. And I don't know if you know Joe Sacco. I don't. He is uh, originally from Malta and he is a journalist. He's a comic journalist. And his work has to be read because he's done incredible stories about Palestine, about Bosnia and Serbia, about the untouchables in India, about Iraq. This is like fantastic journalism, but it takes so long because he literally has to take months to draw the damn thing. Mm. But it's a powerful way to really deal with an issue. So I really recommend if you if you want to read his work, please do. Joe Sacco is definitely a huge influence to me. He's a huge influence. I will write that down and also put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Joe Sacco, J-O-E-S-A-C-C-O. I really enjoyed one of the comics you sent me. I think I actually had to read it a few times to really make sure that I was understanding the, the full context because it's quite complex. Yeah. But also I think that when I read it the first time, I sort of misunderstood it <laughs> and then I went back. Okay, which one? So what I, I got from it is that at one point you were like a you were studying in Cuba. And I think that at the cafe, you found yourself with a Cuban student and you were telling them that, you know, their fight against imperialism was really exemplary. And he was saying, yeah, but there's still certain problematic aspects of like the of Fidel Castro and you, I think this was you, right? The character who was telling him, you know, but the fight against imperialism isn't going to be perfect. You're being too idealistic. And then it jumps to you like 10 years later where someone is basically telling you the exact same thing about the Assad regime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and for me, I felt when I wrote that story, uh, because this was true, this was what I was experiencing. I would always think about that conversation I had in Cuba. I was there during an exchange course for around two, three weeks, uh, and, and, and I remember my positions at that time and what I was thinking about. Because when I was in Havana, when you're outside of Havana, uh, there's a lot of romanticization about Fidel Castro, understandably. Mm-hmm. He was quite a force, and the things that he was standing up to the U.S. and the more than 600 attempts that the U.S. tried to do to assassinate him are quite impressive, the fact that he survived. And the importance of that history. Uh, but when you're in Havana and you see that actually there are problems with the revolution. Mm-hmm. There are still problems, especially for the children of the revolution, where they feel that, okay, we got all these things, but that still doesn't justify the lack of freedom that we feel. The lack of our ability to take control, which is something that we shouldn't discount. I mean, at that time, I was like, wait, the fight against imperialism is the be-all and end-all of it. And then, you know, 10 years later, I'm hearing something similar when it comes to the Syrian case. Now, I want to be careful. I know it was very simplistic in the comic, and I didn't mean to equalize Fidel Castro to Bashar Assad because, again, ideologically, 
what they did and everything and the types of crimes they committed are quite different. Mm -hmm. But I was looking at the commonality of that experience. The, the, that, that, yeah. And that's what I wanted to show that, that actually, you know, things can be more complicated and we need a much better answer to these issues that do exist, whether it's in Syria or in Cuba or in Venezuela or in Ghana or elsewhere. That while, yes, there is this issue that we call imperialism or neocolonialism that does exist, mm -hmm. that does not mean we should ignore the hopes, desires, ambitions, and the self-determination that people within these societies want. And we need to find a, a position, whether it's ideologically or in our discourse or in our action, that affirms those that two points that sometimes can be presented as uh, mutually exclusive and I don't think it is like I said and I've been saying a lot in this show uh, I am against western intervention and that cannot be part of the solution and I am against Assad and he cannot be part of anything and that's where I'm looking at the in-between line how we can focus on what is without these two aspects and it's the same thing globally we have imperialism and we have aspects of dictatorship or internal repression mm -hmm. how can we fight both and we have to fight both mm -hmm. and we can't justify one or the other because of the other you know what i mean like that's what i was really trying to push for and i i got to this conclusion through my own experiences right like i i saw that and I wanted to also show that it's a process because I had my positions 10 years ago that I don't have today. Mm -hmm. I took certain positions that are very similar to what people are taking today. And I get it. I get the impetus. But over time, I realized how flawed it is and we need something better without discounting the, the concerns and the real reality of that position I had, you know, which again, imperialism is a problem, of course. But it cannot justify everything else. Mm -hmm. Or the fight against imperialism cannot justify uh, me oppressing or torturing or leaving women at home or something of that sort. You know, like there's that. There's, we need to realize that aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before I was aware of a lot of these issues, even like around imperialism or racism or patriarchy, sometimes I think back to what I said and I, I'm like ashamed or I kind of cringe. But there is something, I think, very valuable about having those experiences and understanding like those changes within yourself, because then it leads you to be yeah. more empathetic and ultimately, I think, more effective in talking to the, you know, quote unquote, other side. Exactly. And, and your perspective is quite, I feel, is much more pro uh, complex. And, and let's be honest. I mean, does anyone think that they, when, you know, <laughs> they're just born super well, born like a, a Politically excellent? No, it's a fucking process. It takes time to untangle racism. It takes time because racism is manufactured and becomes imposed on you as you grow up. Mm -hmm. It takes time to unlearn it, just like it takes time to unlearn patriarchy mm -hmm. or it takes time to unlearn dogma, you know? You need to go through that process. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of egos where people uh, like to present themselves today as un un you know tainted <laughs> throughout their entire life that they literally popped out of their mom's <laughs> vagina 
completely like perfect you know like yeah like the ultimate progressive superhero mm-hmm. no you did not and please just be honest it took you time to not be a homophobe it took you time to to realize that you know your whiteness is a problem it took you time to realize privilege it takes time completely you know mm-hmm. uh, and it takes mistakes and experience you know yeah that's what i think that's that's one of the sub sub objectives or this the literal thought i had in that comic that i hoped would try to come out as well mm-hmm. and i think that's like i said earlier this is why i think in the next century we need to do something better mm-hmm. because what has happened the past 100 years of that type of discourse especially in the anti imperialist sector because it's a large sector right it's not homogenous it's large uh we've seen it in multiple cases and multiple problems over mm-hmm. uh you know time and i think we need to have something if we are going to be better than the imperialist we need to have a different sort of discourse or a different type of mentality mm-hmm. in these questions we need to challenge ourselves about these questions all right i think that's a good a good life lesson and note to leave it off on <laughs> <laughs> please you i yeah Don't take life lessons from me. I I barely know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> so Oh, me too. That's me too. <laughs> <laughs> I But feel I just that. I say it's Thank you so much uh for for, you know, giving me this opportunity and I hope, you know, what I said made sense. And I really appreciate all the questions that people sent. I I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you to all the listener questions. Um they were all like great and that was very useful for me. See you in a year. Yes, see you in a year with hopefully some a lot more positive news. Uh hope, hopefully. Yeah, we should do we should do this. We should do like a weekly checkpoint. Uh really. I mean not a weekly, sorry, a yearly checkpoint. Cuz I feel like there are certain moments like where you could just I'll be like, "Hey, just play last year's show." And I think we're good. 100%. When I was when I was listening to the interview, <laughs> right? I feel like I could release this now and people probably would not be able to tell that it was a year ago. They would not they would not. Exactly, they would not because that's again, that's something that's also interesting. Uh like Marx once said, right? First as strategy, then as farce. We're we're in a very farcical situation. And it's going to be very absurd. Anyways, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And it was good talking to you. Thank you so much, Yazan, and we'll we'll see yeah. you soon. Yeah. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.